This is the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark, bringing you the latest research on autism spectrum disorders. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website at www.autismexplained.org. I'm here today with Brittany Travers. Brittany is a postdoctoral fellow in the Developmental Disabilities Research Program at the Wasman Center of University of Wisconsin. She did her PhD at the University of Alabama in psychology, and she's uh, now working on very interesting projects looking at neuroimaging as the brain and the autistic brain develops and also looking at motor impairments in kids with autism. Brittany, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So you guys are obviously doing some very interesting work in neuroimaging uh, where you're at right now, but I was wondering if uh, sort of we could we could go a little bit into how you even got into this field to begin with. So give us a little background about how when you decided to do a PhD, uh, what made you interested in sort of this field and, and what led you to working on what you're working on today? Yeah. So I think I took kind of a circuitous route, uh, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was an undergraduate, and um, I really wanted to know what was happening in terms of learning and memory in the brain. And part of this is because my family has a really strong, um, a strong Alzheimer's uh, history, and I didn't understand why memory could just seemingly drop out of people. So that's what first got me interested in, um, in cognitive psychology. And then I uh, visited the University of Alabama, and I met with uh, Dr. Mark and Laura Clear, and they were studying autism, and they were studying how learning and memory were occurring in individuals with autism, and I thought that this was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to uh, try to figure out how learning is occurring and what's happening in the brain of individuals with autism from, you know, a type of behavioral perspective, trying to figure out how people with autism can learn to their maximum capacity. Interesting, interesting. So when was the first time, I'm curious to hear sometimes when when, when scientists uh, say this, but sort of when was the first time you heard the word autism? Was this something you kind of knew about before getting into your program, or was this something that you sort of, after you delved into the, the literature in cognitive neuroscience, then you became interested in this area? Yeah, I had some good family friends who had a son with autism, and um, so growing up, I was very aware of autism, even though I, you know, I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, it was hard for me to distinguish what was happening in that family compared to other families. But um, I found, you know, obviously uh, the child who I'm thinking about had a lot of difficulties. He was so loved and so loving. And so that was always my first entry into autism. It's just really, um, caring for this family and for for the child. Interesting. So then you get to University of Alabama and you've uh, sort of had this interest in cognitive uh, things and then and you meet people working on uh, autism. So so what was the first sort of your first foray into autism research? What kind of things were you looking at? Yeah. So I can remember it was my second day of graduate school and I was uh, doing an autism diagnostic assessment. I actually wasn't doing it. I was just there to observe because I was there to learn. And um, I was there to, you know, look at what's happening in terms of the social symptoms of autism, the repetitive behaviors and the communication symptoms. And actually what I kept finding myself being distracted by was how the individuals with autism were moving in space. 
So the movement seemed very distinct compared to the other children who would come in who in the end did not have autism. And so I was there to learn about learning in autism, but I quickly became very interested in motor ability. And when I went to the literature to try to figure out, you know, everybody kept telling me from the beginning that autism was a neurobiological disorder. So it was something that was happening in the brain. But it still seems unclear exactly what was happening in the brain. And although there's a lot of literature out there that suggests that different aspects of the brain may be atypical in people with autism, I was struck by the fact that um, we still knew so little about the brain in autism. And um, I really then knew that I wanted to learn about how motor learning occurs in autism and how the brain is involved in that to try to get a better understanding of uh, what's happening in the brain in autism more globally. Interesting. So give us an example of like, you. so you say you walked into the room and, and one of the first things that struck you, even though you weren't there to sort of study this, was you said the kids you noticed were moving in space differently. So so give us a more concrete example of what exactly you mean by that. Yeah, it, it's something really hard to describe, but there was a lack of, um, a lack of symmetry in movement at times, a lack of pace in movement. It seemed as if uh, there was just almost kind of a disconnect between different elements of movement in the person. So maybe while one hand was doing something, the other hand didn't seem to be mirroring it as much. Um, and that's just one small example of it. Sure. No, no, that's 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 very good. So then from that, basically, you decided that this is something you wanted to kind of figure out the, the neurological basis of, right? Yes. So so then how so say uh okay I'm a first third my third day of grad school and now I'm interested in motor uh function and autism how do you study something like that what what's the first step <laughs> Well I was told by my advisors very wisely start very small because it's a huge <laughs> there's a million different starting points that you can choose from and you know as a graduate student you usually want to start with you know something huge but in graduate school, they teach you to start with a very small problem, and then you can grow up from there. So I started out with the problem of how do people automatically learn motor skills in autism? And can we look at this behaviorally? So I'm not using anything neuroimaging-wise. I wanted to see if I were to create a paradigm, and this is actually a, a technique that's been used in the literature a lot, but what happens basically if something pops up on the screen, then you have to press a button that corresponds to that thing popping up on the screen. But in the series of button presses that you're doing, you're creating a motor sequence. So, and this motor sequence is learned automatically. So, I like to give the example of uh, even though you've probably never tried to memorize the figures you use to type your name, you can access that memory by kind of really uh, imagining a keyboard in front of you and doing that motor sequence. So your brain has coded this motor sequence for you. And so my first step into this type of research was to look at how the brains, well, it wasn't a brain study yet, but um, how people with autism were encoding that type of information and could they encode it as efficiently and learn it as well as people with typical development. Interesting. So almost in uh, a very, like, crude analogy, but almost like riding a bike, like, uh, yeah. you, your your body just kind of learns how to do something. You don't even have to think about how you're doing it. 
Yes. And in fact, if you do try to think about how you're doing it, so if you think about how much pressure needs to go on the pedal at each point or how your body needs to shift ever so slightly to maintain balance, you might actually disrupt your performance on bike riding. <laughs> right. And you guys were trying to then find out, is there something that is being processed basically differently such that that's not as a fluid of emotion in a child with autism? Yes. And then we think that this may expand to other aspects of learning because a lot of the learning we do in very early, at very early ages does have a type of motor basis to it. So if you think about things like even uh, a little one learning how to walk, that is something that is thought to be very automatic. Interesting. Okay, you said basically that this was your kind of, your, you were interested in studying this, and then you decided that this particular paradigm is what you're going to use. So, so what were some of your initial findings then? We actually found that the group with autism was overall slower in the way that they pressed the keys and the way that they moved, but they were as efficient as the group with typical development in learning that automatic sequence. Okay, so it was like a motor thing is what you're saying. Yeah, and that's kind of what we what we found was that they were slower but able to learn it. So it took them longer to learn it, but once they did, they were equivalent. <laughs> that's a good question. It's actually the fact that they were actually just slower to do the actual motor sequence. So it took them more time to, for example, uh, type their name, but they were able to learn at the same rate as the individuals with typical development. Interesting. Interesting. So then, what was the next? step after that to, to look at? Yeah, so the next step after that is we uh, did the same task, but we did it with a neuroimaging component to it. So specifically, we had individuals go into an MRI scanner, a magnetic resonance imaging scanner, and we did functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. And in fMRI, what you do is you look at how blood flow is occurring in the brain, because we think that, uh, that blood flow will go to the areas of the brain that are most active during a test. And it, it is a little bit more complicated than that, um, but sure. <laughs> I, I think that's a useful analogy for what we're looking at. And so we wanted to see if individuals with autism were using the same parts of the brain as individuals with typical development while learning these automatic motor sequences. So basically, you're saying they were uh, performing this the same sort of uh, typing task that you already had them doing in the first study, but this time, while they were doing it, their brain was being imaged in the fMRI machine. Exactly, just to see how what was happening in the brain while they're learning these tasks. Because even though we showed the same uh, rate of learning, so the individuals with autism are learning it, one thing that we noticed was it might be that they're learning it in a different way than individuals with typical development. Sure. Okay. So then, uh, so basically you, you were able to get a, a cohort of kids with autism and presumably a, a cohort of kids who had not had a diagnosis of autism and, and you were able to compare the patterns you were seeing in the fMRI? Yes, we were. And what we found was that there was, once again, intact learning of the sequence in autism. But perhaps not surprisingly, when we had the individuals with autism do this particular task in the scanner, which is a much noisier environment. I, I don't know if any of the listeners have had an MRI, but there's a lot of clunking and funking that, go, that goes on while you're getting your brain scanned, and you're in a little tube um, while you're doing this task. And we did find that, that the individuals with autism didn't increase their learning as quickly as the individuals with typical development. 
So in this different environment. Okay. Now, now you're saying that were the images you were seeing on the fMRI were were equivalent, basically? Uh, the behavior within the scanner were were very similar, but when we looked at what was happening in terms of the brain and the images uh, of the brain, what we found was that both groups were showing patterns of learning that had been seen in previous literature. But when we looked at where there were group differences. The individuals with autism as, as a group, so when we combined all of them as a group, we found that an area of the parietal lobe, which is known to do a lot of different things. So it's known to um, code for w what's happening in your body. So when you have kind of body awareness, um, that area of the brain codes for that. It's also an area of the brain that is associated with math, spatial reasoning, general motor skills. What we found was that area of the brain was not as active in individuals with autism as they were learning, um, as it was in individuals with typical development. Interesting. So what was the kind of conclusions of that finding then? Was that although they were able to, because it, it basically seemed as though you were saying in terms of the actual performing the task, they were able to make up for it, but it appears as though they were basically using different parts of the brain than a, a typical child. Yes, and one step beyond that we haven't yet talked about is that activation or using this particular area of the brain was highly related to performance on the task in both the individuals with autism and the individuals with typical development. So if we broke it down at the individual level, the individuals with autism who used this area of the brain more were more likely to do better on the task. Wow, that's interesting. And then we also found that this area was related to repetitive behaviors in individuals with autism. Oh, okay. So how how would you make that kind of an assessment? Yeah. So what we looked at was uh, the repetitive behavior index on the autism diagnostic interview revised. So this is a parent interview uh, that was done. And we looked at the um, amount and severity of repetitive behaviors on that measure and we found that activation in this particular area of the brain, it's the um, superior parietal lobe. I haven't labeled it yet, I don't think. <laughs> um, and we found that it, when there was more activation in this area of the brain, the person had fewer repetitive behaviors. Hmm. Talk a little bit about repetitive behaviors. So give us an example of what, what when, you, when you guys are describing repetitive behaviors, what, what, are, you, what are you really getting at? And how is that different than sort of just an average person's repetitive behaviors? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's something, you know, we do have standardized assessments that try to get at repetitive behaviors in autism. A lot of these assessments look at well, a number of different things. Like repetitive behaviors can be things like hand slapping or finger flicking in individuals. But as people age, it can also be, uh, we also code things that are like restricted interest, so a very um, intense and restrictive interest in something like President Lincoln could be considered a repetitive behavior. So it's broad. It's not always just a motor thing, although it can definitely be a motor, like a hand flapping is one of the more classic things they talk about, but it could be um, always clicking your fingers or something like that, or you're saying it could also be uh, like a routine that you're doing. Yes, Exactly. So it doesn't always have to be a motor behavior. Now, are you finding that, uh, or or is this known, that basically, because um, I imagine like a two-year-old would have very different sort of repetitive behaviors than a than a 15-year-old. Do these things kind of 
tend to change over time in a predictable way? They do. And I, you know, I hesitate to say whether or not it's in a predictable way. Um, my experience working with people with autism suggests that these repetitive behaviors do change with age. I don't know, um, you know, I don't really know uh, the literature regarding longitudinal development and repetitive behaviors and exactly how they're changing within individuals and then between individuals. But it does seem that in the younger kids with autism, we do see a lot more uh, like finger flapping or, I'm sorry, hand flapping or finger flicking. Um, whereas in older, perhaps higher functioning, so higher IQ individuals with autism, we see more of the restricted interest. Interesting. And so uh, tell us, tell us. I'm curious to know, so you were saying that basically what you guys were homing in on that study was the, the parietal lobe, which is essentially kind of if you put your hand on the side of your head towards the top is where it would be, right? Now, is, is that traditionally considered an area that um, has been associated with repetitive behaviors, or are there other parts of the brain that uh, before you guys, I guess, were more traditionally associated with repetitive behaviors, and then how did your results kind of uh, square with those those people's findings? Yeah. That's a really good question. So when you're just looking at repetitive behaviors, areas like the anterior cingulate has, have been found before. I will say that this area has been associated with so the right superior parietal lobule uh, specifically has been associated with repetitive behaviors in previous studies and, and generally autism symptom severity. Um, but it's hard to look at how um, things, how previous studies that found the anterior cingulate to be related to repetitive behaviors, it's hard to understand why our study didn't find the anterior cingulate um, activation being uh, related. One suggestion is that we're just looking at activation that's happening during this motor learning task, which may not activate the anterior cingulate as much, which then may not allow us to detect a correlation between anterior cingulate activation and repetitive behaviors in this study. Interesting. Uh, I have a, also like a more technical question with regard to um, fMRI. So from reading a little bit about your field, I, I know that basically um, there's a lot of potential for artifact in, in the signal if a child is moving around too much, right? And yeah. so I'm curious when you have a child in an MRI machine, but they're, you know, told to move their hands, how do you how are you able to control for that, and how are you able to know that the kids with autism weren't moving more than the kids that didn't have autism? That's a great question, and that is always a concern in any type of neuroimaging um, work that we do. So this particular study, we went scan by scan. So for each individual, we looked across all time to see how their head, uh, whether or not their head was moving. And even one of the concerns in neuroimaging uh, research is that even a move that's two millimeters, which is a very slight little movement of the head, um, can be something that affects the scan. Right. And so what can happen, what, what we did here is we removed any uh, uh, any movement that was uh, two millimeters or above. So basically you, you take out any data that appears to be based on movement and not on uh, brain signal. Yes. So we look just at the, we have like movement plus. So we can look just at those and then extract out the scans that are that correspond to that movement. Interesting. So, that's, that's, that's really neat. Yeah. So that imagine really a lot neat. of work to do that, though. Oh, it is. <laughs> um, I find that it's really worth it. But I will say that I don't think that that always removes all the movement. Another thing that we do in the literature 
is uh, we look to make sure that the groups are similar in their movement because there's a lot of work out there in other um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging techniques that has found that even slight group differences in head movement can uh, make there look like there's group differences in the brain when there's really not. So uh, are you saying, do you feel as though this this issue of movement in fMRI studies, is it completely worked out yet, or do you think we still have a little bit way to go to optimize it? I think we always have a way to go to optimize it. And it's just because, you know, there's a million different ways that the head can move, and I don't think we understand all the well, – let me put it this way. When we're imaging the brain, there's a lot of different ways that we can image it. So one, the most common way is to look at the individual slices of the brain and then one at a time, take a slice at a time, um, take a picture of a slice at a time. And you can think about how movement during that uh, could be really disruptive because you can have an idea of where that movement occurred at what slice, but then trying to piece the whole brain back together can be kind of challenging right, if there's been movement at one piece of it, one piece of the puzzle that then doesn't fit with the rest. There's another imaging technique that was originally developed around the same time that the one that's kind of taken hold was developed. And it is actually, and once again, this is an oversimplification, but it is looking at the whole brain pretty much at the same time. And so I do know some work that's happening at the Wasteman Center with Andy Alexander and Steve Kexmetti where they're trying to use these new techniques where you're imaging the brain at the whole time to control for motion even better in all the scans because then you don't have to piece it back together at the end to figure out what slice goes where. Oh, wow. Interesting. So even at the level of sort of how you're processing data, there's innovations going on. Oh, yeah, and how you're collecting data. You know, neuroimaging is in some ways a really young field, and it has a long way to go. I think it's really, really exciting, but I think we also should always remember that it is a machine. It's a tool that we're using to get an idea of what's happening in the brain, and we're using really high level. So one one really important thing about neuroimaging research is that it takes a lot of people. So on my neuroimaging studies, I work with a biomedical physicist. I actually work with two biomedical physicists who understand the physics of the machine, I work with people who are radiologists, people who are MDs. For me, I come from a cognitive psychology background, so I uh, focus on interpreting how the brain may relate to behavior, and I also do these analyses. But having an interdisciplinary team, I think, is really critical because the way that neuroimaging works, I my training would be, you know, decades longer if I were expected to understand all of the biomedical physics behind some of these things. Right. Right, so it takes a massive team, massive collaborations, because you have to have all kind of components. Yeah. You're listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. Visit us at www.autismexplained.org. So uh, along those lines, let's talk uh, about, because I know you've done some other interesting work using a different imaging technique called DTI, uh, diffuser tensor imaging. Let's let's talk about that a little bit and how that's different than the work you did in fMRI, but how it sort of uh, can tell you, you know, parallel things. So so explain to us a little bit some of the work you've done using that technique and what that technique is and how it works. Yeah. So 
One of the things that we keep finding in the literature broadly is that autism may uh, be a disorder of underconnectivity of the brain. And a number of different labs have found this, where it seems like different aspects of the brain may not be talking to each other as efficiently as in the brains of individuals with typical development. So this really led me to want to understand what's happening in the highways that allow the brain to communicate. And that's the white matter track of the brain. And white matter... Okay, so so if I could just interrupt you for a second. So when you're saying yeah. like, you're communicating within the brain or disconnectivity, you, you, are, are you saying basically um, a region of the brain, so say you were talking about the parietal lobe before, its ability to send a signal to another region of the brain? Is that what you're saying? Yes, and so one or of the e- or even within the parietal lobe, just to talk to itself, cells within there. Yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the earliest findings suggested that autism characterized by long range underconnectivity or disconnectivity, but um, enhanced short range connectivity. So that would suggest that within a short range, so within the parietal lobe, the brain is probably talking really well within itself in autism but it might be the more long-range connection. So between the parietal lobe and the frontal lobe, so kind of the forehead area of the brain, that um, there may still be a lack of connection between um, between these areas. Now, that might be... Okay, so that's what people refer to as a long-distance connection, right? Exactly. Yep. Is it, is... And that's what you're saying is connected by what's called white matter? Yes. And I will say, just kind of a, you know, a caveat is that people are still investigating whether or not it is long-range connectivity that it, versus short-range connectivity that is actually impaired in autism. We know that under-connectivity is definitely at play. There's a good amount of converging evidence for that. But uh, one issue goes back to the movement question that you asked me earlier And one thing that they're finding, when we are looking at how the brain is connected, uh, we have found that movement really makes it look as if short-range connections are more connected and long-range connections are less connected. So the literature... And and you're saying that was the original sort of findings in autism, was was that long-range was under-connected, short-range was over-connected. But then as people did studies of just average people, but they were moving a lot, they found that that was actually the same thing. Yes, and so it's still unclear whether or not that pattern of results in autism is entirely due to head motion or whether or not head motion is only a contributing factor to it. And so people right now are trying to tease that apart. Um, but, but the jury is still out a little bit. Gotcha. So tell us about your studies looking at using DTI to study white matter then. So you were interested in studying long-range connections. Yes. So the white matter of the brain or the highways of the brain, it's what, um, you know, going back to biology uh, 101, it's the axons of the neurons that are covered in uh, fatty uh, tissue, basically. It's myelination. Um, and so, so axons being the, the, the things that connect one cell to another, right? Yep, exactly. And so what happens is the myelination or the fatty um, sheath around the axon allows transmissions to happen really quickly throughout the brain. But it also, when you look at a brain scan and you see white versus gray on the brain scan, and usually the white uh, is in the middle part of it, um, the myelination is what gives the white matter its white color. 
Okay, so when people are referring to white matter, they're talking about the, the myelin that's basically around the axons, and the axons are what allow cells to connect to each other in different parts of the brain. Exactly. And so and at the level of neuroimaging, remember, we can't really get at the axon level. So when with neuroimaging, um, as it stands now, we're just looking at large bundles of uh, axons that we kind of group together and call white matter because it looks white on the scan. <laughs> So when you're saying you're studying a white matter track, you could be seeing thousands of individual axons, but you're picking them all up as one sort of unit. Yep, yep. And a lot of okay. the axons do kind of go together in, in units, so you can kind of um, categorize them and participate them. But yes, we are not at the axon level at all. We are kind of looking at, you know, at the groupings of them. So this technique called DTI, then, diffuser tensor imaging, is able to then basically map out that structure, right? Yes, it is. And the way that it does it is kind of interesting. What happens is water, when there is nothing obstructing water, it diffuses in all directions evenly. However, if there's, uh, imagine a straw going into a glass, and you put a little bit of dye in that glass, what's going to happen is the dye is going to go along the straw because the straw is blocking the water or, or the dye particles in the water from diffusing evenly. Okay. And so the same thing is happening in diffusion sensor imaging where when water is along these white matter tracks, it flows along the white matter track and it doesn't diffuse in its regular um, even direction kind of diffusion. I see. And so with diffusion sensor imaging, we can actually trace where the white matter tracks are in the brain. Wow. So so basically because there there's already water in the brain and water has a tendency to run in parallel with these white matter tracks, you're able to basically infer where the white matter tracks are by looking at water patterns. Exactly. And then on top of that, we can, by looking at different components of the water patterns, we can get an idea of what might be happening within those white matter tracks that may be making them atypical. Oh, great. So practically speaking, I mean, this is a sort of a neuroimaging technique. If I were to have a DTI done versus an fMRI or, or MRI, is, is the experience different? Like, is the machine the same? Is the, does it take longer? Um, what, how does it work out sort of on a practical level? Great question. So it's the same machine. Um, the scan sounds a little bit funnier. <laughs> There's a little bit more higher pitch noises, but that's really the only difference between a typical MRI scan and a DTI scan. How long would something like that take? You can get it down to six minutes. Six minutes. And just to be to be clear, like this is a purely used for research purposes, right? Um, I think at this point it is being used for research purposes um, only. But, you know, don't quote me on that. I do imagine that outside of autism it may be used for clinical purposes as well. I gotcha. Okay, so tell us about some of the work you've done in autism, uh, sort of using DTI to look at these white fiber tracks. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind, if I go back for just a second, I do know that there are some DTI techniques that are being used in multiple sclerosis. Okay. Um, Because multiple sclerosis is a demyelination disease. Sure. And so DTI is looking at how that might be happening. Okay. So tell us about some of your work uh, using GTI in autism. Yeah, so um, one of the studies that I've had the privilege of uh, working on is in collaboration with Janet Lanehart, and um, she is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison currently, but she collected a longitudinal study with um, some amazing collaborators, 
from Harvard, from BYU, University of Utah. Um, and this longitudinal study is really incredible in that it spans from ages 3 to 53. Um, and we have collected uh, 12 years of neuroimaging data in these individuals. So every two years or so, uh, the person would get an upscan. Um, and so with this, what we're trying to do is to figure out how the brain is changing and developing in autism, not only from when they're very little and diagnosed with autism, so around the age of three, but also throughout the course of the lifespan. So what's happening in the brain in adulthood in autism? And so we have, uh, you know, more traditional MRI techniques. There was a paper just published um, this year in Brain. Um, Brandon Zawinski is the first author looking at cortical thickness and longitudinal development in, um, of cortical thickness in autism. But my piece of it is I have been looking at diffusion tensor imaging within this data set to try to figure out what's happening with these white matter tracts uh, in autism compared to typical development. And uh, does it relate to different aspects of behavior? Wow, interesting. So that sounds like a huge study. So you're saying you have people who are diagnosed with autism spanning the ages of 3 through over 50, and then you have a, a, a separate cohort who have not been diagnosed with autism also spanning that ages. And yeah. you're scanning everyone, and then you're basically comparing both between autism and people without autism, and then you're also comparing over time. Yes, Exactly. And from this, we cannot, so we know that there's a lot of individual differences in autism. And one of the big issues in not only neuroimaging research, but behavioral research is that depending on how you select your autism sample, you may be getting a very different group. And that may be um, impeding replication in these studies because we know that, you know, they oftentimes say if you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. Um, so how do we account for that within the neuroimaging literature? And the best way to do that, it seems, is to have longitudinal measurements. So I will say that's not easy. And the participants in this study are really, I, they are superheroes to me because they are going through these scans. And the scans can sometimes take up to two hours because we get a lot of brain imaging information. And then on top of that, they're doing all these behavioral assessments, you know, IQ testing, every two years or so as well. So these are multiple days uh, that they spend every two years or so in our lab really working hard so that we can better understand what's happening in autism. Oh, so you're, you're saying not only do you have different people who are spanning an age range, but individual people are coming back multiple times over multiple years, so you can actually see within one exactly. individual. Oh, wow, that's an, that, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, so we have about 12 years of that repeated, we call it repeated measure data. So um, most individuals have at least two time points that they come back, but up to four time points. Wow, that's a huge study. So tell us about some of the findings initially that you have on that. Would you like me to start with the diffusion tensor imaging ones, or should we start with, like, critical thickness? Let's do both. But tell us about the, the diffuser tensor imaging since we were just talking about that. So this is the study of the white matter tracks that connect different parts of the brain. And tell us about what you found both between autism and then kind of over developmental time. Yeah, and I will say we're just starting to crack into some of the bigger analyses for the diffusion tensor imaging data. 
Um, but some of the initial things that we've done is one of the things in working with people with autism that I've noticed is processing speed or the rate at which they're able to kind of take in information and then be able to provide information back can sometimes be a challenge for a lot of individuals with autism. And so we thought that that might be related to white matter of the brain that we can measure through diffusion tensor imaging because it's the white matter that allows for these efficient communications. Sure. And so what we did is we looked longitudinally to see how processing speed is changing and developing in autism. And we found that on average, a 12-point difference in processing speed ability in autism compared to typical development, and that's after controlling for IQ. When we don't control for IQ, it's an 18-point difference. And let me um, contextualize that point difference. We would consider anything that's a 15-point difference something that is of clinical concern. And to have the entire group be at a 12-point difference after controlling for IQ is something that suggests that there is a very big clinical concern for processing speed in individuals with autism throughout the lifespan. Wow. Okay. So uh, walk us through a little bit when you say control for IQ. So it, this is an important <laughs> point. Um, uh, explain a little bit more what you mean by that. Yeah, that's a great point. That's something that, that I oftentimes uh, take the granite or gloss over. So what happens is processing speed scores oftentimes filter into what an IQ score will be. So um, any families whose, whose children have gotten an IQ test, oftentimes there is a processing speed component to it where they're trying to cross off certain pictures quickly as they can or fill in different uh, symbols as quickly as they can on these IQ tests. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that it wasn't that there was an IQ difference between the groups that were driving this processing speed difference, but it was actually a processing speed difference after controlling for IQ. So after we account for each individual level of IQ, is there still a processing speed difference? Right. So you're basically what you're saying is you're able to normalize the baseline speed based on what the, the person's underlying IQ is and then only compare basically apples to apples. Yes. Gotcha. Okay, and that's that's very important, I think, because, like you said, sort of uh, there's, there's couldn't be a lot of variability just accounted for by IQ that has nothing to do with autism or whatever else it is you're studying. Absolutely, and we we actually ran that analysis both controlling for IQ and not controlling for IQ because some people argue that when you do normalize IQ, you're changing the way that the autism symptoms are um, being presented. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So what what did you find in that analysis? We found that there was even greater processing speed differences when we didn't control for IQ. I see, I see. So finding the same result both ways made me feel more confident that, yes, this is something that's really solid and it isn't due to one factor. Right, right. Uh, interesting. And And then can you kind of like explain, basically, when you say processing speed, are we talking about sort of a, an average across the whole brain or were you only looking at the parietal connections or, or, or what are we talking about when we say that? That's a really good question. So this, these were behavioral measures of processing speed. So what you would typically see on IQ test, so how quickly can they fill in different symbols? Uh, how quickly can they cross out certain items? if they're given a picture of a lot of different items. And the brain part of it comes when we look at the diffusion sensor imaging across the entire uh, entire brain, all the white matter in the brain, what we found was that processing speed ability was indeed related to this white matter diffusion sensor imaging metric. 
But the more surprising thing was that in autism, it didn't appear that the white matter was accounting for as much of the uh, processing speed uh, differences among individuals as we might expect. So you guys were expecting to find more changes in autism, basically, than what you ended up seeing. We expected to find that the white matter was almost enti- the white matter differences were almost entirely driving the processing speed differences. Right. So you basically have a, a ability to statistically model what percentage of so you, you said you were able to find a 15, 12 point difference in processing speed. You can use statistics to figure out how much of that is accounted for by changes in the the white matter. Right. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And we thought that that would be a really robust. Thing because white matter, what it does is it allows you to process things quickly, right? It allows different areas of the brain to communicate and function um, quickly. Uh, and what we found was that it contributed to processing space. So the white matter differences contributed to processing space, but it didn't account for nearly as much as we thought it would. So there's something else that's happening in the brain, very likely, that is also contributing to these robust processing speed differences that we're seeing in autism. Interesting. So, uh, so kind of along those lines, if, if it wasn't the white matter, or at least at the the level that you were able to analyze, um, I'm I'm curious to know what you think it is, or or what it isn't, and uh, kind of where where are you going from here in terms of your future research in this area? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So one thing we're looking at is um, individual white matter tracks. So it might have uh, been that. When we look at the whole brain white matter, we aren't really um, getting a clear picture of the different tracks that are really contributing to processing speed. I see. And so the next step has been to look at the longitudinal um, progression of these different tracks to see which of these tracks may or may not be the more atypical tracks in the brains of individuals with autism. And so our first step in this has been to look at the corpus callosum, which is the largest white matter track of the brain. And it is this uh, midline track, so it's the center of the brain from front to back, and it connects the left side of your brain to the right side of your brain. Okay. And uh, like I said, it is the largest white matter track, and it's also the track that is most consistently found to be atypical in uh, in individuals with autism using a number of different neuroimaging techniques. Right. Okay. So you're you're focusing on that specifically, basically, and not analyzing the rest, and and thinking that the rest might be confounding what you're seeing there. Exactly. And so um, what we're finding in these longitudinal trajectories is that there are um, group differences across the corpus callosum. So usually people with autism have more typical corpus callosum BTI metrics compared to people with typical development. But we're also finding differences in developmental trajectories. Wow. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so specifically in the front part of the corpus callosum, so the part that connects the left and right funnel areas, we are seeing that people with autism at very young ages, or so three to ten year olds, have higher um, metrics of DTI. Uh, they're having higher DTI metrics compared to the typically developing group, but then that drops in around, I would say, maybe ten years of age we're seeing that then they begin, the group with autism has lower DTI metrics compared to the group with autism. And, and when you say metrics, you're meaning like the signal coming from the white matter is high, is higher than basically a, a, a control group? Yeah. And there, so one uh, thing that's a little complicated is there are different metrics 
that you can get from the fusion tensor imaging. There's four primary metrics that you can do, but the most popular one is called fractional anisotropy, or FA. And so that is just, uh, you know, as rule of thumb, that is thought to be a measure of what they call microstructural uh, integrity. So how, um, you know, how well is the water diffusing across these white matter tracks? Is there something that's inhibiting the water flow on these tracks? And so this measure takes that into account. And what we find in typical development is that these, the FA starts low when you're very young, and then it gets higher and higher and higher through teenage years. The plateau is maybe around 20, 25 years of age, and then continues to stay steady until maybe about 45 years of age, and then it dips down again. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing in autism is a very different developmental trajectory, where they're actually starting high, dipping low, staying stable, and then dipping lower. Oh, interesting. And and this specific track you're looking at, it's known to connect which, which areas of the brain? So the frontal, uh, the frontal left and right hemispheres is the one where we're seeing the biggest uh, group difference in these developmental trajectories. So, so it would be basically like right above uh, my eyebrows, kind of, in the front? Yeah. Right. Of, so I would say from the um, middle of your head, the top of your head forward. Okay. And it's, and th- it's connecting the left to the right. Okay. So this is connecting the left and the, the same region of the brain, but on the left and the right side. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Um, oh, and, and I'm curious uh, to learn more about uh, the, so the corpus callosum in general is a big structure that connects lots of different parts of the left and right brain. Am I correct? Yes, I bet you're going to ask, what does it do? <laughs> I'm curious what it does, and I'm also curious because uh, um, I have had a little uh, maybe more training than than some of our listeners, but I know that it's true that there are people walking around, a certain percentage of people that are not diagnosed with autism, uh, basically have no known diagnosis of anything that don't even have a corpus callosum. This is so true. So um, I w- let me tackle the first, uh, question of what it does first, and then let's talk about those individuals. We call those individuals without a corpus callosum uh, people with colossal agenesis. So basically, being born. Tell us about what it what it does first, and we'll go into that. Yeah, exactly. So what the corpus callosum does, in short, we don't necessarily know. It is such a huge white matter tract that it's almost like asking, "What does the brain do?" And so that's been one challenge in trying to parse. What what's happening in the corpus callosum. So a lot of ways that it's traditionally segmented is in three different segments, um, where we have the anterior or kind of the frontal corpus callosum. And we know that it connects the left to the right hemisphere, um, but it seems that um, we still don't have a really good idea of exactly, you know, what types of tasks that it's involved in, although we think it's probably involved in most everything we do. Sure. And that um, it somehow is involved in higher level coordination between the two the two hemispheres, right? Exactly. Uh, those with colossal agenesis tend to have a lot of difficulty with higher level, more complex tasks. Oh, okay. And so and so we think that the corpus callosum is one of those tracks that when, you know, when a task goes from being simple to more complicated, the corpus callosum becomes more involved in allowing communication from the left and right hemispheres 
and then allowing us to, you know, do the more complicated aspects. So if you think about a puzzle that's maybe five pieces, you can put that together pretty quickly. You can probably do that while doing something else. But if you have a puzzle with 500 pieces, it takes more cognitive effort and more complexity. And so that might be something that the um, corpus callosum is more involved in. Okay, so so basically, as, a, as opposed to some other areas of the brain, corpus callosum is, uh, while highly studied in autism, it's an area that even outside of autism just isn't as well understood of what exactly its function is. And I would say, because I've been looking into this the last few years, is one challenge is I don't think we have a lot of behavioral tests that do a good job of tapping into what the corpus callosum does. So we have behavioral tests that, you know, we look at things like verbal ability, and we parse it down into nonverbal ability or spatial ability, and then we have working memory, and then we have processing speed. But with the corpus callosum, I think that it might be something, we don't have a lot of tests that look at uh, complexity levels of things. And so I think that part of it might be that when we're matching, you know, our, our knowledge of what's happening behaviorally with people, and we have those particular tests, and then we try to match it with what's happening neuroimaging wise, there is kind of a mismatch when it comes to studying the corpus callosum. I got it. So, so basically, we're just applying tests that have already been developed, say, for the parietal lobe and using them to assess the corpus callosum, but they may not actually be uh, assessing what we think they're assessing. Yes, exactly. I got you. So that, so that could be a, a major future area then in, in both autism and brain research in general is how can we figure out ways of assessing the corpus callosum behaviorally. Yes, exactly. And I, I think that would be really exciting to do to come up with some behavioral assessment of it. Great. So so we're getting a, a little short on time. Why don't we uh, – I'm curious to know, um, you're cur- you're obviously doing tons of, tons of work and sort of lots of different things. In, in the near – in the next five years or so, where do you see your research going? What major types of questions are you going to be focused on? So um, some of the things I'm most excited about right now is just uh, the vast amount of research that is finding that motor ability appears to be related to autism symptom severity. And this is something that I kind of surprisingly found in my dissertation. And then when I looked through the rest of the literature, it's something that's been commonly found. And so the big question here is if we can use motor ability to predict how severe a person with autism symptoms will be, what does that mean for intervention? What does that mean for how we diagnose autism? Um, and what does that mean about what's happening in the brain? Interesting. So you're saying that it's obviously clinically very easy to kind of measure motor ability, and is it possible you would not even need to put a kid in a, a fMRI scanner, but you could use motor ability as kind of a proxy for what's going on in the brain? Yes. And so far, we have been looking at that, and it does seem that motor ability is highly related to white matter um, GTI metrics, which is really exciting. Uh, so, for you know, obviously motor ability can't tell us everything that's happening in the brain, but uh, it, it can tell us a good deal. And so can we come up with an idea of um, one big question in autism research is how do we deal with individual differences or the heterogeneity within the autism group? So how do we study um, a number of people who have really a lot of differences, but we call them one group, we call them the autism group? And is there a way that we can better parse that and better come up with subgroups um, using uh, brain imaging metrics or motor metrics? Interesting. Well, it sounds like you uh, 
you're obviously onto something quite interesting, but you're also kind of doing the whole spectrum. You're interested in, in seeing if you can use it as a clinical indicator. You're interested in, in kind of finding out what, how does it relate to the structural changes. And, and, and in some ways, you'll you'll basically even just find out information about how the, the brain just works normally, right? Yeah, that's our hope. And one thing I'm excited about motor stuff as well is that motor skills are something that we can intervene with. So if we have a better idea, of uh, how motor skills are developing in children with autism, we can have a better idea of maybe how to help them um, participate in playground play, uh, how to help them uh, develop independent living skills if motor, uh, if there are some motor barriers to that. So um, in my research, I'm really trying to hit upon things that can help people with autism today, but also feed back into the theory of what is more globally happening in autism which will take a little bit longer time to sort out. Excellent. Well, thanks. It's been, you know, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. It's very interesting, all, all the things you guys are doing. Uh, before we wrap up here, one thing we like to do at the end is play a little kind of fun game called we call Rapid Fire, where basically I'm going to um, prompt you with a, uh, some, some different things that relate to autism. And what I want you to do is without really – Without giving it any thought, just whatever first comes to your brain, one or two, one or two uh, words. Tell us uh, w- what you think of these these different things, okay? Awesome. Okay. Uh, the first one, uh, the cere- the region, the cerebellum in autism. Oh, complicated but really cool. <laughs> Recent DSM five changes for autism. I think a good step forward, but we'll need to figure things out. <laughs> okay. The U.S. Brain Initiative, the research funding initiative. Um, really exciting. FMRI as a diagnostic test for autism in 2014. Oof. A little nervous about that one. FMRI as a diagnostic test for autism in 2025. Possibly, but I think it needs to be combined with different neuroimaging techniques and not just fMRI on its own. The future of autism research. Ooh, exciting. Hopefully really trying to help families in these next few years. So changing the focus. An example of a overhyped area of autism research. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Let's get that one. The best scientific journal that publishes autism research? Ooh. Oh, that's a really tough one. I I tend to think either autism research, the journal, or um, JAD, the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. All right. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Brittany Travers, for being on the show today. Dr. Travers, postdoctoral fellow at uh, the Weissman Center of University of Wisconsin in the Developmental Disabilities Research Program, and uh, thank you so much for having for being on the show today. We hope to have you again. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. This has been a production of Autism Explained Incorporated. All views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not represent Autism Explained Incorporated or its employees. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your physician. Follow us on Twitter at 
Autism Explained and visit our website for more shows and other material at www.autismexplained.org.